Are you ready? Are you shitty down? It's season four of the Shine On Podcast. Absolutely terrific guests. My take on what's happening in the world of divorce. Are the stakes high? You better believe it. The unfiltered and real take on what divorce is like from the absolute best professionals. Life, love, marriage, divorce, relationships, finances. Topics that far too often many people shy away from. But, but not, not here, here on, on the, the Shine On Podcast. podcast. It's episode 72 of the Shine Up Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Happy February, everyone. We have an absolutely terrific episode this week. Coming up on the podcast, featured guest segment, I am joined by Dr. Luana Marquise, speaker, author, scientist, innovator, associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and an author of the book, Bold Move. I'll tell you what, this interview, it's incredible. It's outstanding, and you do not want to miss it. Producer Dave, we talked about this after we recorded the interview with Dr. Luana. She was brilliant, inspiring, she's driven, and she's motivated and wants to help as many people as she can. Yeah, I loved it, Evan, and you, as I think you just mentioned, we talked about after the we finished recording how terrific she was. All the guests we have on here are great in their own way, but... This one, particularly, she was just honest, genuine, and I learned a lot that I didn't know before so about relationships and, and all that, and she was terrific. Which says a lot, because, Dave, you're like the relationship guru. For you to admit <laughs> that, I mean, you're the guy who, who knows it all. Not, not, according, not according to everyone I connect with on Bumble and Tinder, Evan, but <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. You know what's missing? On your profile, Dave, I think you need to add in executive producer <laughs> of the Shine On podcast. Because for anyone who doubts, right, that you don't know it all, they need to listen to the podcast. You have to. That, that's what's missing. That's what's been missing from your bio profile all these years. The Shine On podcast. And put a link. Let's get some downloads. That's put a link for anyone to click on. Hear the interaction. Hear what you bring to the, the podcast table. That's why I got into podcasting for the chicks. Said no one. Said no one ever. <laughs> Dave, I know you're chopping out the bit. Yep. Kick off this week's docket here on the podcast. So as you always do, let's fire it up. Here we go. And now let's see what's on the docket. Well, Evan, I know you like me are a big football fan, and of course, this NFL season has all been all about. Taylor Swift. So our first item has a connection to Ms. Swift. Let's uh, let's find out. Item one. Item comes to us from the New York Post. Headline reads, I had a divorce party with a bleeding Taylor Swift style cake and a drastic haircut. Kate Tampon, apparently from Essex, UK, threw her sister Tony an epic party to celebrate her divorce. Attendees all wore black. Burned photos of Tony's ex-husband, played drinking games, and ate a blood cake inspired by Taylor Swift's blank space video, which I wasn't familiar with until now. But your thoughts on this one, Evan? I got to be honest. I don't know what the hell a bleeding cake is, but I want it. And you know why I want it? Because it's associated with Taylor Swift. And look, we're going to talk about Taylor Swift in a second. But let me give a shout out to former Shine On podcast guest who's quoted in the article 
Fresh Start Registry, Olivia Dreisen Howell, who says in the article, there's no place that celebrates these big life changes. We tend to celebrate babies and weddings, but not everything else in between. And she's talking about divorce and she's talking about what's next for people after they go through the divorce process. Now let's move on from the Fresh Start Registry to Taylor Swift. Mm. And I love this. Why? Because like so many people, I can't get enough of Taylor Swift. I want more Taylor Swift, <laughs> if that's even possible. And I got to tell you something, Dave, you know I am a diehard football fan, a diehard New York Giant fan. You want to know the impact of Taylor Swift? She has me questioning my loyalty to my favorite team. <laughs> my daughter wants a Travis Kelsey jersey. Mm. She doesn't know who the hell Travis Kelsey is. <laughs> But now she does. She knows who Taylor Swift is. And I'll tell you this. We're living in a Taylor Swift world. <laughs> it's living in a Taylor Swift world. She's brilliant yeah. on so many levels and for so many, so many people. And she's touching so many things. And now she's touching how we throw divorce parties. Yeah, I mean, and it's appropriate because Taylor Swift's world is one where – she gets through breakups through her music, well-documented. I think she has about 700 songs about breaking up with boys. But it, it, it's, But I'm glad to hear you say that, Evan, because Taylor Swift has become this polarizing figure, and the lines are being drawn. There are the diehard football fans who don't care for her music who say, why do I have to look at her on my screen? But then you have people like another New York icon, David Letterman, who, who actually went on social media to say, well, will everyone calm down? This is a lovely thing. And you know what? It is. It is a lovely thing. And I think, was it Tony Dungy or someone who was critical of the, the whole Taylor Swift phenomenon and really the impact of football and seeing Taylor Swift nonstop uh, celebrating with uh, Travis Kelsey's brother shirtless mm. in, a, in, <laughs> in the suite after touchdowns. Right. But I love it. And look at it. It has been a money-making machine for the NFL for everybody involved. And it's great. You know why it's great? It also gets people into football and mm. into a sport that you may have not been into mm -hmm. before. So I love what she's doing on so many levels. And I got to tell you, I don't know how to get a Taylor Swift cake at a divorce party, but I want it. <laughs> I want it too. If it's a blood cake, it's probably strawberry. So, you know, sign me up for that. We move on to item two, which comes to us from KOSU.com. Item two. Headline reads, Oklahoma bill would end incompatibility as grounds for divorce. A bill that would abolish no-fault divorce is drawing the ire of some attorneys and domestic violence victims advocate. It's being promoted by Senator Dusty Devers, a Republican from Elgin, Oklahoma. Pretty interesting twist on the state level, but nonetheless interesting. Your thoughts, Evan? Dave, we go from someone in Taylor Swift who gets it to someone who's totally lost in <laughs> Senator Dusty Devers. And he filed his bill, as you mentioned, look, and it's apparently no longer to allow people in Oklahoma to file for divorce on grounds of incompatibility, which is also known as no fault. This guy's lost. This guy is absolutely out of touch. And what he's proposing you can make the argument is quite frankly cruel, unjust, and unfair. Let me get this right. He wants to make it harder for people to get out of marriages. Abusive, toxic situations. Situations that are filled at times with domestic violence. 
there's been so much progress in the right direction over the years with legislation to go towards no-fault divorce, making it easier for people to get out of really terrible situations. And now he wants to change a law and implement the bill that sets, a back, sets us backwards? Come on. What's your take? Same. It, it, it's sort of depressing to see that. I mean, not I, I suppose not everybody sees it this way, but the, we've progressed. We've The marriage is not... It's not husband marries wife, wife becomes property. Now, I think anyone would agree with that, but that the, the archaic notion is is maybe part of the seed of this moment to say, no, it's a sacred bond and you you have to... Now, I don't think marriage should be taken lightly for sure, but... Of course, and look, I, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not yeah. saying that. I'm saying there's a tremendous benefit when you have a statute and legislation that allows people to file for divorce for no fault or based on irretrievable breakdown of the relationship and marriage. Yeah, and divorce is painful enough to, to think that you would have to prove that adultery occurred in a court of law when we, we don't have to do that in no fault states, absurd to me, and with potentially painful results. We move on to item three. Item, item three. three. Comes to us from Psychology Today. Headline reads, The Devastating Impact of Depression on Marriage. When you feel hopeless about your marriage, it may be your depression talking. This comes to us from Dr. Samuel Pauker, and again, in Psychology Today. Your thoughts, Evan? Dave, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's such a tremendous overlap between the mental health field and the divorce space. Understanding underlying mental health issues It's truly an important part of understanding your own relationship, your own marriage, and understanding your spouse and yourself if you get divorced. And this piece in Psychology Today, I like it. It focuses on depression and how depression is far too often ignored by couples, and the focus tends to be on poor communication and things like that. But this article goes deeper and asks why. Why are things happening the way they are? Why does our communication suck? Why is the situation not great? Why is there a lack of intimacy? Why are we not speaking at all? Why can't I open up to my spouse? And it goes on to discussing how understanding one's mental health is really a key to understanding one's relationship and how to improve it. We're now up to the portion of the program where we hear from you. Here's another edition of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Letter comes to us from Bert in Patchogue, New York. Bert writes as follows. Dear Evan, I've been divorced for a year and it has been mostly amicable, but my 12-year-old daughter is constantly texting when she is with me, especially to her mom. Now, of course, she should be able to text with her mom, but sometimes I fear she is reporting on my parenting, most likely prompted by questions from my ex. Is there anything I can do? Your thoughts, sir. Well, this is a great question and a tough spot. Look, the reality is your daughter's at that age where she's on her phone. She's texting. She may very well be using social media. I would suggest having a conversation with your daughter about the phone and to try to set parameters when she can use the phone. And I would also try to get on the same page with your ex and discuss a plan for technology that together the two of you can talk to your daughter about. You put in your question that the two of you have been in an amicable post-divorce relationship. If that's the case, use this as an opportunity to set ground rules together. 
I would make the conversation less about what you think your daughter's reporting and make it more about what you and your ex can do together to get on the same page and talk to your daughter about technology and about using the phone on an ongoing basis when she's in one of your care. It sounds like that's very good advice because it sounds like you're saying certainly try that first before you go into court and try to get something written into your separation agreement that details when she can text and when she couldn't. Yeah, I mean, it's a good yeah, That's a good point. I mean, part of it, too, it depends on the separation agreement. If there was language in the original divorce separation agreement that talks about and sets forth language that deals with this issue, technology, when a child could have a cell phone, right, the amount of hours a child could use it. If your agreement was that detailed, and most agreements will not get into the level of detail I just mentioned, then you may have a, a right to go to court to modify it. But even if your agreement is detailed, I think it's best to talk to your ex, get on the same page, and talk to your daughter. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on the Shine Up podcast is Dr. Luana Marquise, speaker, author, scientist, innovator. She's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and the former president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Dr. Luana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Evan. I'm excited to have you with us. And I want to start today's episode by talking about anxiety. And I want to ask you, is there more anxiety in 2024 than ever before? I mean, the prevalence on anxiety is going up, right? Before the pandemic, we knew that about 20 to 30% of the U.S. population would report some level of anxiety. Since the pandemic, the CDC is reporting about 40% of the U.S. population is reporting now clinical levels of anxiety. So half of us will have some level of anxiety. And let's be honest, do you know anyone that doesn't have some anxiety? I don't know. And that's the thing, which is everyone experiences anxiety, whether it's their flights delayed or they're stuck in traffic. So on a day to day basis, you're 100 percent right. We all experience anxiety. So how do you know when anxiety, when it's not just a normal reaction to something, but it's something much more troubling? So let's just defining anxiety, right? Because when, when we're talking about anxiety, what does that feel like? Often we're talking about the biology of anxiety. So heart pounding, racing thoughts, difficulty concentrating. But for some people, it's really, they get stuck on the what if, right? What if the bad, if something bad happens? And for some of us, whenever we feel that sense of anxiety, we just avoid something. And so your question, Evan, is a great one. When do we know that anxiety is actually a problem? And it's when it starts to get in the way of our day-to-day. You want to ask for a raise, and instead of asking for a raise, you get paralyzed. You want to actually ask somebody out on a date, and you just can't do it. So when it starts to do what psychologists call cause interference, it starts to get in the way of your life, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating, that's when we start to go, that anxiety might really be causing a problem. Your book is called Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power, which is an absolutely must read. But the the title is so compelling because it sounds like you're laying out a concrete plan rather than sounding like the stereotypical sympathetic therapist. So tell us how you settled on this title, which I think is absolutely brilliant. 
Thank you so much, Evan. I believe that we can rewire our brain. And I believe in skills, not just therapy. I'm not a talk therapist. I'm a cognitive behavior therapist. And and my job is to teach people these skills that honestly got me out of poverty in Brazil, landed me to become professor at Harvard today. And so the idea behind the book is really to learn how to capitalize on that anxiety, to propel you forward and to deliver really actionable skills so that you know how to change your thinking, how to approach instead of avoid, how to live a values-driven life, and to do it today, not tomorrow, but today. You talked about your experience growing up and in, in, in overcoming challenges and adversity in Brazil. How did this impact and influence your approach to mental health? And is there one particular moment that you look back to your childhood that inspires you to keep going today? Well, there's two moments that come to mind. I grew up in a little town in Brazil with a single mother. My father left. There was lots of trauma and adversity at home. And at about 15, my mom was having trouble paying the bills. And she said, I just hate being poor. And I remember looking at my mom and said, you might be poor, but I never want to see myself at poor. And I don't know what was there, but that today I know that that is really shifting our perspective, talking to ourselves a different way. So there's this mentality for me, despite of the adversity, of a growth mindset, of this idea that I could overcome it. And then at about 16, I lived with my grandmother in a bigger town. And at that point, I developed what today would be called symptoms of social anxiety. I started to think strangers would not like me. I started to become shy. And my grandmother literally took me to the mall and forced me to talk to strangers. Wow. And wow. I was so terrified, Evan. At first, I was like, no, 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 I can't talk to strangers. But she pushed and pushed. And when I got to graduate school in the U.S. and I was learning cognitive behavior therapy, I was like, oh, that's called exposure therapy. And so I think that's why I loved writing Bold and Move and why I wanted to write is because they're actionable skills that my grandmother taught me. They're science-driven that we can apply in everyday life. and they honestly transformed my life. Wow. What, what what an unbelievable story. Now, when we talk about anxiety, curing the world of anxiety would be an ambitious goal for anyone. Now, assuming for a moment that you don't quite reach that goal, what do you hope your legacy will be when it comes to having the people who read your book or anyone who comes in contact with you on how they think about anxiety? My hope, in fact, I got a message today from somebody on Instagram that equated what you're talking about. This woman said, I hit a wall and I thought I could get out of this. And I understood that anxiety was paralyzing me. By reading Bold Move, I understood the real infection is really avoidance, that I was avoiding that anxiety. And so I've made friends with my anxiety and I'm just taking it along with me, but I am not stopping myself anymore. I am going to live a bold life. And so that's that's the legacy I hope everybody in the world can learn from the book is that if we just focus on anxiety, we're paralyzed instead of thinking about what do we do when we're anxious? And for most people, they avoid what makes them anxious and that's why they're stuck. And if they can have that light bulb, then I think people can really get unstuck. When you hear feedback like that, how much does that mean to you? Yesterday, the book was released in Brazil, in Portuguese. And yesterday there was a big news article in the major page in Brazil, major newspaper. And I got so many messages that I got so overwhelmed that I literally cried. It's wow. just, it's such a sense of like coming home, so to speak, and, and seeing the impact. And you write a book and you don't know what people perceive of the book. Will you help somebody? 
the impact at a global level has been so amazing that I'm just humbled, really honored and humbled. How has being a parent influenced your perspective on mental health and well-being? Parenting is a hard job and you can know everything about psychology, but when you are face-to-face with your kid and you're in your own fight, fight or freeze and you're spinning, it's hard to apply it. But the thing that changed the most for me, I always, my research, a lot of my research is with inner city youth and I've done a lot of things with corporate America. But when I sit back and I look at the population of kids growing up, I feel like we must teach them the skills in the bold move. And so being a parent makes me even more compelled. I want to I want to write a little book for kids on the same idea of bold move. I want to call it When Cows Meow to teach kids about dissonance in their brain. Because I think it really makes a difference when a six-year-old knows. I'll give you an example. My son, Diego, is six. And the other day, he said to me, he was in the middle of a temper tantrum. He says, I'm on my emotional brain and you can't get me out of there, mom. And I was like, you're right, kid. You have to get your, your thinking brain back on. That's right. It's so cute that he knows that at six, right? Imagine if every kid could learn that. I think it would make a huge difference in, in the world. No, look, that's uh, had to be a proud moment for you. And I'm going to take that advice. I have a four-year-old, so I'm definitely going to take that advice and to the next interaction or thing that comes up with her. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as simple as like, there's two parts of your brain. There's a front of your brain, the back of your brain, they're competing for attention. And then they start to internalize it. Dr. Luana, you mentioned corporate America. And I know you speak to audiences, including CEOs, community leaders, and corporate teams. These types of people, they don't really sound like the type of people who are so eager to talk about their feelings in an open setting, open forum. How do you deal with that? I think most of corporate America... We're not willing to even have the conversation about well-being before the pandemic. I think there's been a real shift on this understanding that if you don't run well as a human being, you can't function well at work. Now, before we could leave our personal selves at home and show up at work, and, and that bleeding has really been crossed since the pandemic. So what I really tried to do, and the reason I called the bullet, bold move, is this idea of like, do we ever feel stuck? And if we get stuck, let's understand why we're stuck and how to get unstuck. I try to really talk more about well-being and thriving than mental health. Because I do agree with you, Evan. When you start to talk about mental health, people get paralyzed in their brains. Like, no, no, not me. But if you talk about being stuck and overcoming and thriving, then audiences have been very receptive. I've really enjoyed my corporate keynotes since the book came out. Because people are, at least it has felt to me. People come to me after says, oh, my God, that really changed the way I see myself in my work. And so they're very thankful. What's been the biggest challenge in your career for you? And how did you overcome it? The biggest challenge in my career is when I found myself no longer aligning my daily actions with my values. Early on in my career, the value that I cared the most about was ambition. And I defined ambitions, climbing the academic career and publishing papers and getting grants. And eventually I hit a wall. It wasn't that those things weren't important anymore. They weren't my most important value. I really wanted an impact. But like everybody else in the world, I think that good enough gets us stuck. The job is just good enough. What I'm doing is just good enough. And so I was pointing to do the thing I was doing before. I was privately unhappy, having trouble with sleeping and yet unwilling to change. And I had to come face to face with 
my values, realign them, think about how to get unstuck. And that's how I actually wrote Bold Move. I got to a place that I was like, I can't keep doing the old. I have to let go and do what I really want to do. And I defined the impact as having people read the book and hopefully helping them. And that was hard. I won't lie. It was hard to let go of what I knew I could do well to do something different. How has the field of mental health evolved over the past few decades? And is it moving in the right direction? I think it's moving in the right direction because we have created ways in mainstream America and globally to talk about mental health. I think we are starting to rethink who can deliver therapy, how can you access therapy, the boom in the digital world. I think it's helping tremendous. I think we have some big barriers still, but I think it's moving in the right direction. How much of your work is grounded in science versus your own personal experience and intuition? Everything I do is sort of grounded in science. That being said, as I told you, that science I first learned from my grandmother. So it's sort of melded together. For example, I was giving a presentation the other day and somebody asking me my opinion on hypnosis. There are no good data on hypnosis. So I can't tell you to do it or not do it. I can't tell you what to do. Versus like cognitive behavior therapy, there is more than 300 studies in the US, more than thousands globally done. And so I will give you the science. That being said, there is some practice and some magic that happens when you're sitting with somebody. And so some of it is guided by my history. And I've done therapy now for 20 years. I've done executive coaching for 10 years at least. And so there's a lot of history. So I think some of this is also just having done this for so long and gotten to mastery. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I get asked all the time as a divorce attorney. How do you prioritize self-care and really maintain your own sense of well-being while you're also actively helping others and so intimately involved in people's lives? So the trick here is if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. And somehow we have this idea that taking care of others is more important. Being of service is extremely important. But I live my life based on three values, really, which is impact, health, and family. And every week I look at my calendar and I look at what I'm doing and I make sure my health is there, that I'm taking care of my health, that I'm taking care of my family, that I am taking care of the impact I want to do. And I watch for it. Because what I've learned personally is if I do not take care of myself, I can show up. And so I believe that the only way I'm a good therapist, a good speaker is by doing self-care first. And so I put myself first on the list. Bold move, obviously, absolutely fantastic. Could you share any upcoming projects or initiatives, books on the horizon, anything that you're particularly excited about next? So I'm really, I'm writing a book on transitions, specifically when our values get compromised. I believe that a lot of people in the world after the pandemic had the seismic moment of like, what do I care about and how do I live a life? And yet aligned with it. And yet most people are holding on to the old. And so thinking about transitions and how to live a better life. So that's the next book I'm, I'll be writing. I'm very excited about that. And I'm doing a lot of corporate engagement. I just launched a course as well, diversity with John Cena, the wrestler. I'm really oh. proud of that course. Um, it's really fun. So I'm writing a new book, launch that course, and we'll see what's next. Oh, all, all absolutely fantastic stuff. Dr. Luan, I want to ask you going back to 
the corporate America work that you do, the public speeches, you've been known to meet people, hear their problems, and provide them with tools to get unstuck in real time. How do you dispense good advice on the spot like that? That's where that science and practice really shine. I love Q&A on my corporate events. I really do. I've seen a lot in my career, right? I fly all over the world for VIP patients and I work with people coming out of prison. I've worked with billionaires and I've worked with frontline people. So when somebody asks me about panic, I can answer. If they're asking me about how to ask for a raise, I can answer. If they're asking me a question about what do I do in my marriage? I'm stuck. Still can't answer. And what I try to do is answer at the level of the whole audience, right? Because if one person there is asking that question, very likely there's other people. So I try to elevate the question, give a dose of science, and always, always, I mean, give an actual skill. So I don't answer a question, but I just say, just overcoming anxiety. I say, here are the three things you need to do to overcome that anxiety. When it comes to anxiety, is there, what are your thoughts on when someone should reach out to a psychotherapist? Really, how could someone understand and appreciate that what they're going through might be something more than just a blip on the radar and they can benefit from professional help. So really take, think about anxiety as a thermometer, okay? From no anxiety at all to a lot of anxiety. As that thermometer gets hotter, then what you're going to see is the many domains of your life start to get contaminated. You're drinking a little too much. You can't sleep well. You're taking too long to do your work because you can't concentrate. You're fighting with your spouse or you're even avoiding engaging in a relationship. People at work notice that you're a little edgy or you might raise your voice. When you start to put those pieces together, think about them as pieces of the puzzle. The more pieces you add, the more it would suggest that the temperature is higher. And at times we don't see it ourselves. We're like, no, it's fine. It's fine. I can do this. Then look at those around you and ask two or three people that you really care about how they think you're doing. And sometimes just holding that mirror, people can say, you know what, Luana, you've been a little edgy. In fact, I mean, I'll tell you, my husband is my best mirror. Whenever I start to speak <laughs> up, he, he just gives me a look and I'm like, what it is? He's like, what are you avoiding? You're clearly anxious. And I'm like, oh yeah, I am anxious. And then I slow down and I can sort of center myself again. So hearing that story, your own personal experience with your husband, and he's the best mirror, for people who don't necessarily have that dynamic, for people who are in marriages or relationships, that they don't have that transparency that you talk about, what impact does anxiety or other mental health issues that you see, how does that impact one's relationship if you don't have that type of communication and transparency. At a minimum, at a minimum, it's going to cause some communication and intimacy challenges. You won't be able to connect and really trust and belong with that person. And the extreme, you see this, it leads to divorce. In fact, I was at lunch with a colleague the other day and she was telling me about some challenges in her marriage. And she asked me the question. She says, what do you think will happen in my marriage five years from now? And I'm like, do you want the answer? She said, yeah. I said, well, if you don't fix it, it's divorce. I mean, we know that what, you probably know the statistics better than I do. The last time I looked, at least 50% of marriages, first marriages end up in divorce. That's spot right? on. Right, so. Exactly. And second, so, marriage, second marriage is even higher. It's higher in second marriage. I mean, I did a lot of couples therapy early on in my career. And, you know, 
it's like anything in life. If you don't want to engage and fix it, it's going to break. And it breaks, we, we fix business deals, but we don't fix marriages. I think we marriages deserve perhaps the same attention as our business deals, just maybe. Has there been, as you look back on your incredible career and all the wonderful things you've accomplished, is there a memorable experience, whether it's the book, whether it's a client, whether it's someone you met at a, at a, at a public talk? Is there anything in particular, one moment that stands out to you that you'll carry that interaction with for the rest of your life? Gosh, my life has such different flavors. There, maybe I, can I pick two? Go ahead. That, pick two, pick three if you need to. No, I think there's two. 10 years ago, I did work bringing the skills in the bowl to move to nonprofits. And there's a particular story of a young man who had come out of prison that learned the skills and in real time decided not to shoot somebody because of the skills that I had taught this organization. Wow. And so wow. I always say to myself, whenever I am frustrated that I'm not doing enough, or I sometimes want things to happen faster than they do, I keep thinking to myself, if I can help somebody not shoot somebody, like imagine what impact I can do in corporate America. Can imagine what impact sure. I can do globally. Well, that's incredibly, so that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. yeah. that Maybe that's the one. I'll stay with that one. That's the one that I... Whenever I personally feel frustrated, I think about a lot that like these skills can transform somebody's lives. I'm not sure how you even top that. I mean, that, that's I mean, as you as you're telling me that. I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful. And, and so let me ask you: when you hear something like that, right, or knowing what the book accomplished, or or what the advice you gave someone, I mean, that, that has to to I mean, give you such an incredible feeling. And sense of, I mean, just immense pride in your work and knowing that you're helping so many people with the different lives that you touch. Thank you, Evan. It does. I, I won't lie. Like it, it, it gives me this fire in my belly of wanting to do more. It's like, how do I help more people? And it just feels like there's hope in the world, right? At a time that we have so much challenges globally, not just in this year, in this country, but globally, it gives me hope that. If we can change our brain, we can change the way we relate to each other and we can change the world, maybe. Yeah, that's great. Dr. Luana, I want to bring on producer Dave, executive producer of the Shine On Podcast. Let's have a little fun. And Dave, take it away with the fun segment we do on the podcast called They Said It. That's right. We're going to do They Said It, where we hear three famous quotations. Let's get into this, Evan. Let's do it. They said it. They said it. They said it. All right. The doctor, our guest, has not seen these quotes before, and we're going to ask her what she thinks, pro or con, or somewhere in the middle. The first quote to us comes to us from author and professor Jobert Botha. Jobert said the following, Sometimes the people around you won't understand your journey. They don't need to. It's not for them. Doctor, your thoughts on that one? Stay on your lane. Anchor in your values and keep going. Not everybody's going to understand what you're about to, and that's okay. Is it, though, a healthy perspective to try to get some people to understand your journey? I mean, I imagine it could be quite an isolating, frustrating thing if you feel like no one knows what you're going through. I think you have to have people in your camp that support you and they can understand or at least align with your journey and your vision. 
But often when people are doing things extraordinary, people around may not 100% see it. And, and I think that's okay. Mm. All right. Excellent response on that one. Number two comes to us from Noam Spencer, who is a PhD psychologist. I didn't know that before the show. I had to look it up. But anyway, Noam said the following. Mental health is not a destination, but a process. It's about how you drive, not where you're going. What do you think about that one? So it's interesting. In our culture today, we want things right away, right? People want to lose weight right away. And yet we forget that even in our physical body, we can't get a six pack overnight. You have to go to the gym, you need to eat healthy, and it takes a process to build your physical body. Mental health is the same thing. It's brain health. Maybe that's what we should be calling it, brain health. And it takes time to rewire our brain. And it's really about aligning your life with your values, thinking on that process. It never ends. Often people come talk to me, it's like, how do I know when it's ended? It doesn't. It's a process, a lifetime. Yeah, I'm reminded of the film As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson. And the title of that film is derived from one particular scene where he's walking through the waiting room of his therapist and looking at these people who all look reasonably miserable. And he says, (laughs) do you ever wonder that maybe this is just as good as it gets? And it's a depressing thought, but I suppose there's there's a sort of bright side to it, though, that if you know this is as good as it gets, let's make the best of this. I don't know. Emma, you were nodding, Doctor. Did you, are you a fan of that movie? Or? I, I love the movie. It's an <laughs> old and good movie. I think this depicts OCD really well. I think it has to be as good as it gets. In fact, the movie shows it's not as good as it gets. True, right? true, right. So I think this idea that we have to compromise for less, the good enough, oh, I think we can find ways to thrive and be happier. And that's what I aspire for everyone I ever work with. Oh, geez, that kind of inspired me. Maybe this, except, may, Dave. Except the whole six pack comment yeah. by the doctor. I, I think I think she broke your heart thinking you're not going to wake up tomorrow with the six pack. No, yeah, I am living proof that those six packs do not come overnight, <laughs> and they may not come after any night. But we can always dream. Last quote comes to us from Henry Ford, and Henry Ford said the following: "When everything seems to be going against you, remember that the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it." So I thought Henry Ford made cars, not airplanes. But nevertheless, your thoughts on that one, Doctor? It's hard to swim upstream. I agree. And sometimes it feels like you're doing it alone. But I, what I love about this quote is this idea that you never know what heights you're going to get once you take off. But you have to start somewhere. And sometimes it feels like the odds are against you. That's certainly how my life started. And look where we are today. So take off and hold on and see what you can build. Yeah, I'm sure someone like you has taken risks in life, whether they be career risks. Take a, It seems like every person who's accomplished great things, it starts with some kind of leap. And for people that progress in their life without really ever taking a risk, they may make it to the finish line just like the rest of us. But they, in my opinion, you're a lot better off taking that risk, taking that leap at some point and failing maybe learning from it i don't know am i onto something there doctor yeah i i think life well lived is a comfortably uncomfortable life if you're completely comfortable nothing big happens you're completely uncomfortable you're paralyzed you can't do anything so it's being just enough out of our comfort zone and being clear on that process and then and then we're gonna win we're gonna fail but keep going 
This does not always apply for fans of the Detroit Lions, Evan, as we were talking about. As we record this, a couple of risks they took yesterday did not pay off. Nevertheless, they'll be back. At any rate, kidding aside, Doctor, you did tremendous, and they said it, and well done. We have a set of steak knives on our way as a prize. No, we don't. We have your appearance on the Shine On podcast, though, will be cherished. Evan, back to you. Dr. Luana, that was absolutely brilliant, Dan. What a fun segment with producer Dave. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell everybody listening where they can pick up a copy of your book, where they can learn more about you and find out about all the wonderful things that you have going on. Well, it was a pleasure to be here as well. On social media is at Dr. Luana Mahfiz. Uh, my website is drluana.com. Uh, feel free to send me a message, connect. I love hearing out for people. This was absolutely fantastic. And when you have that next book out, we're going to have you back on the podcast to get into everything that you're doing in the new book. Thank you so much, Evan. It was really a pleasure to be here with you today. Episode 72, what a show. We go from talking about Taylor Swift, an absolute legend, <laughs> to producer Dave, another legend, to our absolutely <laughs> incredible featured guest spot with Dr. Luana Marquise. Producer Dave, how great was this? It was terrific. I'm just excited we're off. We're um, two episodes into season four and already in mid-season form, I would suggest, Evan, and much more to come, of course. I want to thank all the listeners, and you can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And Pod 617, I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.